The following message by Shane Sowers is brought to you by Central Baptist Church, Aurora, Colorado. www.cbcaurora.com Let's go to uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. I still want to do it. So I know it's going to seem a little bit strange. We're doing a Father's Day uh, sermon on a day that's not Father's Day, but this is just, you know, make up for next week. But uh, there's some things that I think is really important, really important for men today, especially our young men today, um, that are, or our fathers today. A uh, lot of things that are happening that makes things a little bit confusing. And what I'm hoping to do is hoping to kind of help us understand things. Today may be a little bit more touchy-feely than normal, uh, but I, you know, I promise there's still going to be preaching. But while you're turning to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, in our world, think about this. In our world, when you watch TV in our world today, you got fathers. And our fathers today are not Ward Cleaver back then. They're just not the same. Fathers today, how we see fathers today is more your Homer Simpson, your Eddie Griffin, your Al Bundy, your Bob Duncan, your God Bluth. They are the image of our fathers today. The fathers today are the B-U-T-T butt of every joke that we hear uh, today. They're seen as incompetent, bumbling idiots, fools, actually even seen as unnecessary. So one of the things that I think is really interesting, though, family, is uh, we, we got a couple of new, new uh, uh, apps, you know, the, the new TV apps. And one of the things I think is really interesting is they have TV shows from, like, the 70s and the 80s. And so um, I started watching uh, Good Times again and uh, Leave it to Beaver, obviously. And, you know, uh, is Good Times the one with J.J.? The dynamite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, it's interesting how fathers are pictured then and how they're pictured today. It's, it's, it's amazing how, how you see this change and, and, and how um, you see that in society today, fathers seem to have taken that position where society sees that this position is not really worth anything anymore. The continued venture to minimize and detach ourselves from authority. And that's the big thing that we see in our culture today, is this need to detach ourselves from, the, from authority. Why? Because our uh, motto in our post-post-post-modern culture today is nobody tells me what to do. That's, we're all running around thinking that. But the, but, the fa- but the position of fathers, is that really worthless? Is it really unnecessary? Because when you look at statistics and you look at some of the findings and the research that you know, psychologists have done, even Christian, uh, Christian psychologists, pastors, the, the research that we have done, we've found something very interesting here. Children with involved and respected fathers tend to be more confident better able to deal with frustration. Do you know they're better able to gain independence and their own identity? 
more likely to mature into compassionate adults, more likely to have high self-esteem, more sociable, more secure as infants, less likely to show signs of depression, less likely to commit suicide, more emphatic. Boys have been shown to be less aggressive and adolescent girls are less likely to engage in promiscuous behavior. Some vital statistics that we see, 63% of teen suicides come from fatherless homes. 90% of all runaways and homeless children are from fatherless homes. 80% of rapists with anger problems come from fatherless homes. 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. 75% of all adolescent patients in a chemical abuse centers come from fatherless homes. Daughters of single parents without a father involved are 53% more likely to marry as teenagers. Interesting. Get this one. 711% more likely to have children as teenagers. 164% more likely to have premarital birth 92% more likely to get divorced themselves. And watch this. This is what I thought was interesting. Even in high crime neighborhoods, um, the, the kind of the lower, uh, the lower echelon, I guess maybe you could say, of neighborhoods, 90% of children from stable to parent homes where the father is involved, they do not become delinquent. A report that was published by the Baptist Press states that if a child is the first person in the household to become a Christian, there is a 3.5% probability that everyone in the household will follow. If the child's first to become a Christian, 3.5% that everybody else will follow. If the mother is the first one to become a Christian, there is a 17% chance that everyone else in the household will submit to Christ. 17%. Mom saved first. 17% chance that the whole household will become Christians. If the father professes Christ first, there is a 95% probability that everyone in the house will follow Jesus. Are fathers important? I think so. I think the statistics are showing us. I think the research is showing that. But see, here's the thing. I think many times, though, too, we really, as fathers, don't need society <laughs> to bring disrespect. Why? Because I think we do a pretty good job of being disrespectful on our own. We've done it in a lot of ways. We've dropped the ball in a lot of ways. Many of us struggle with this because for many of us, we didn't have a, a, a father to, to learn from. We didn't have a good example of what a godly father looks like. Now, now here's the thing I want to I wanna say that, that we've got to be honest with when it comes to this. Now, as a, as a young man, 
you know, growing up, there was a lot of issues when it, when it came to father figures in my life. You know, like I said, many of you know I came from a broken home. My parents were divorced, all of that. There, you know, there were boyfriends and all of these kinds of things that were involved and all this stuff. So not a lot of, uh, not a lot of good examples when it came to the shaping. And so I knew that. And so as, as uh, like, like I told you guys, my minor was in psychology. So what, that was one of the things about, you know, relationships, fathers, all of that stuff where I... I, I had to deal with a lot of those types of things and come, come to grips with stuff. But here's the thing that was interesting. Uh, through all the study that I did, all the idea, the philosophy of fathers, what it was to be a father, all of those types of things, that, all that, you have all of that, you studied all that, I have a degree in this for crying out loud, and I still do things that my father did. How is this possible? Do you, do you know why that is? Because a lot of times we read books about fatherhood. Uh, and I'm not saying not to read books about fatherhood. Read books about fatherhood, all this stuff. But we do a really good job of building the big picture, right? The big picture, uh, the philosophy of what it is to be a dad, what it is to be a father, how we're supposed to discipline, all this stuff. But what we don't get is we don't get the little things, you know, like it doesn't say in the book, like, when your wife says something really disrespectful to you, it doesn't tell you what you're supposed to do. Right? If you accidentally leave the toilet seat up, your wife gets mad, starts to yell at you, you don't really know because you didn't read about it in the book. You know, I knew, I knew of a couple that fought all the time because, you know, the, the husband you know, had this thing about globbing his, his toothbrush with t a lot of toothpaste, and then when he starts to brush, globs of it will drop, you know, and it'll land on the part of the sink that doesn't get wet. You know, so it just sticks there, and then the wife gets really mad, all this kind of stuff. And then there's this tension that happens, and it's just like he reacts in certain ways. She reacts in certain ways. So how is it that we're reacting? Well, we're reacting in these ways because we've seen what our dads did in these little situations. We have nothing to compare it with. See, this is the thing that I think is really interesting. When it comes with this types of stuff, we come to the place where we just say, hey, you know what, Shane? I just don't know. And then individuals, believe it or not, will actually say, I've read through the Bible, Genesis through Revelation, and I don't find a lot of instruction about how to be a dad. My question has always been, what Bible are you reading? <laughs> what makes, see, because here's the thing. This is why this is easy for us. On the one hand, it's easy. You know, on the other hand, it's, there's a lot to go with it. But on the one hand, it's really easy. When people will say, well, Shane, what is the secret of being a good father? It's the same secret of being a good husband. It's the same thing of being a good person. Do you know what makes a good father? Is a man who's a good Christian. You see that? A man who's a good Christian. And the scriptures help us with this clearly. So what makes a good father is a good Christian that's guided by the scriptures. Some have even said, like I said, Shane, I just don't know how. The scriptures teach us. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Really, really simple, short passage of scripture that has a ton in it. Fathers, 
It's in the vocative. Fathers, he is calling out. This is something the Apostle Paul is saying. Fathers, listen to me. Hear what I have to say. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. May he hold his wonderful truths in our hearts forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and I pray that you continue to help us, Lord. Help us to see your word as sufficient, all that we need for life and godliness. And it will continue to seek you and your word. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So lots, lots to unpack here. So many men that I've counseled with this, I, I, I bring this passage of scripture up, right? And, and many will come to me and say, hey, Shane, this scripture is actually not very helpful. And I just think that it's not necessarily that the scripture is not helpful. It's just our lack of understanding of all that's involved here. There's a lot that Paul is saying here. So maybe it'll help if, if, if I translate it a, a different way. So maybe we can try to translate it from the Greek in another way where, he's, where the Apostle Paul is essentially saying, attention, fathers, don't make, uh, I, I'm just going to say it, don't make you all's children <laughs> angry, but nourish them in the discipline of the Lord and the warnings of the Lord. So I think because fathers think that we're simply not supposed to make our kids angry and they think, well, that doesn't make any sense. Of course I'm going to have to make my kids angry. We dismiss this as this is just something confusing. I just don't understand it. And so we just don't you know, pay a lot of attention to it. So maybe let's try it this way. Fathers, do not treat your children in such a way as to make them angry or irritate them, but raise them tenderly with Christian discipline and training. Maybe a little bit helpful, more helpful. See, because in this section of scripture, the context, children are exhorted to obey their parents. This is a command that's given. In turn, did you know, fathers, that we are being given a command by the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, speaking with the very breath of God, exhorted with an imperative firmly, do not provoke the children to wrath. Instead, you need to nurture them. But don't make them angry, Shane. I mean, come on, man. <laughs> I mean, that's going to happen, isn't it? I'm going to make, make our kids angry. Really? Is that possible? Well, New Testament scholar Leon, Dr. Leon Morris, he helps us in a really, really good uh, commentary here, I, I thought. Um, he says, effectively, the apostle is ruling out excessive, severe discipline. See, because here's the thing, right? It, it's Paul, the apostle, God, let's just say Paul, the God speaking through Paul, would we agree today that God knows what he's talking about? Okay, just want to make sure. <laughs> so if that's the case, Paul is saying not to provoke your children to anger. But we know that a lot of times when it comes to discipline and rebellion, we're going to do things that are going to make our children angry. So what does God mean then 
when he talks about this? What, what, what is, what's happening here? Because what this scripture is actually implying is that there are ungodly ways that we as, as fathers can anger our children. See, this is the thing that I think is really interesting, how a lot of times when men, we come to this passage of scripture, we see, oh, this just doesn't make sense. We dismiss it. And this is what I've counseled men, young men, many times. We do not dismiss scripture. If you don't understand it, you don't say, hey, you know what? This is not for me to understand. It's only for people that understand and know Greek and all that stuff. Only those people. Yeah, this is for them. God is only speaking to those that can understand and comprehend these types of things. My question has always been, why is it that we're so quick to dismiss this stuff? We get to a place having a difficult time with the passage of Scripture, and we just dismiss it. Instead of actually going in to try to understand it. Because if God is telling fathers, and this is important, he is calling fathers out today, and he's making it very clear. And he's giving an, an imperative in the Greek. It's called an imperative. It's a command. He's giving us a command. Do not provoke your children to wrath. Don't you think that would be important enough for us to try to figure out what he means? And what we see here is the implication that there is a way for fathers, for us to, un in ungodly ways, make our children angry. So maybe we should try to figure what those things are. And this is why I think Leon Morris does a really good job. He talks about this. Effectively, the apostle is ruling out excessive, severe discipline, unreasonably harsh demands, abuse of authority. Is it possible for us to abuse authority? Uh, we see it every day, don't we? <laughs> Arbitrariness, unfairness, constant nagging. <laughs> Uh, constant nagging. That's the thing. I, 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 don't, I don't do that to my kids. That's, that's just, you know. Condemnation. Subjecting a child to humiliation. And all forms of gross insensitivity to a child's needs and sensibilities. Such as, let's just, there's a bunch of these, but let me just give a couple to kind of help us understand this type of things. One of the things, uh, believe it or not, that we see... Um, that we see with, that fathers can unnecessarily anger their children is overprotection. Overprotection is a big one. Uh, and I have this number one because it's kind of a big one. And it's something that I have to deal with. You know, uh, me personally, I'm very, very protective of my kids. You know, it's just I'm, I'm always, you know, doing stuff. But this is the thing that is, is, is very important for us to understand and for, uh, for us to get nitpicking what they do, where they go, who they're hanging out with, all of that stuff. There is a lot of truth and a lot of importance to those types of things. But we've got to allow a degree of risk in order for the child to become healthy. So it's a big one. Uh, free, I, I like to say this, free to a degree. <laughs> Not prisoner to a degree, but free to a degree. And I remember reading something about this once. An individual used the idea of a bird. He goes, if a small bird were to sit safely on its nest, it will never learn how to fly. And, and, it just, and that was one thing. It was just like, if we don't allow our kids 
moments of independence. Now, I'm not talking about when they're two years old, okay? If they're two years old, you keep them in, you know, in the dog, the dog cage. You know, you keep, you keep them. I'm just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you all didn't do that? Okay, I, I must have missed it there. Um, you, know, that, you know, when they're older, believe it or not, risk-taking is necessary for their physical and moral and spiritual development. And now this is the thing that you find. You find that a lot of young people will react to this. And they become angry at this. And I just thought this is really interesting how angry young people get. Because they realize that when they get to become a teenager, they don't have confidence to do anything. And they can't do the things that other children can do. You know? I, I remember the first time, you know, I was going to have, uh, we, we had a, a situation where my son was going to go on, uh, what is that thing you do in the summer? I can't think of the name. Camp. Camp. Oh. Yeah, you know, summer camp. And he's going to go to summer camp. Uh, at, at, uh, in Moscow, Idaho. Uh, so he's going to go to Idaho to do summer camp. He was 16, 17, 16, 16 years old, 16 years old. And I'm like, <laughs> uh, my son is going to get on a plane by himself to go do all this stuff. No, are you kidding me? And then it was like, then the, just like, and all the other parents are okay with this, you know, because all these other kids are going to do it. And I remember having a conversation with my dad about that. And I'm just like, you know, um, I, I just, is, this, is this normal for a 16-year-old kid to get on an airplane by themselves, to travel by themselves? Is that normal? And my dad was like, Shane, you were doing it when you were 14. <laughs> and I had to think back, and I was just like, yeah, that's right. I did that. And it was just kind of like, so what, what am I supposed to do? So I'm supposed to continue to do this. So now my son is 30 years old, and he can't get on an airplane by himself. And then he's mad at me, and I'm trying to figure out why. See, the thing is, is why the overprotection? Sometimes it feels like, you know, and I have to repent of this myself. Sometimes it feels like, my overprotection is because I'm trying to protect me more than I'm trying to protect my kids. See? Do you know that favoritism angers kids? This will result in problems for sure. Oh, yeah. You can see this stuff in Scripture. I mean, look at how messed up things were with Jacob. Jacob, who was favored by mom, and Esau, who was favored by dad. Bible makes that even clear that there was favoritism going on there. But why the favoritism? Why is there favoritism? Is it because one child makes us look good to others better than the other children's we have, the other children we have? Is it more about us than it is about them? Here's another one. Humiliation angers unnecessarily anger our children by humiliating them. And I think, I think we got to be careful with this. Hey, Dad, I, I want to be an astronaut someday. Or I want to be a lawyer. Or, Dad, I want to be a nuclear scientist. Or I want to be a rock star, which is the thing I just absolutely thank God I haven't heard from my children yet. 
I, or dad, I want to play shortstop for the New York Yankees. And the response is, don't, don't be ridiculous. You're not smart enough for that. You're not tall enough for that. You're, 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 you're too stupid for, for that. You can't do that. You're, you're way too clumsy to play shortstop. You, Rockstar, since when do you think you can sing? Have you heard yourself tell? I'm telling you, I heard you. You're one of those first round people in American Idol. You got no skills. Man, dream on. It will never happen. Discouraging, you know? It's discouraging for a lot of our, our children today to hear that. Now, I get it. I get I get that there are times <laughs> where, where the idea of, of something that they want to do and the dream that they have is pretty lofty. I get it. You know, I, my, my dad had to sit me down and have a really, you know, firm, you know, conversation with me when I was in high school where I was telling him that the only thing that I want to do in life, my whole purpose in life here, the reason why God put me on this earth was to play for the Los Angeles Lakers and be a professional center playing basketball. And my dad had to break it to me that one of the things that's important to play center for a professional basketball team is to be tall. Now, Shane, you're 18 years old, and it, you know, there are things that you know, show that you, you, men are still growing. They can still grow to their 25, so th there's still a chance that you could be taller than Frank, but, you know, I, it, it might not. The, the goal is Steve Petrie. I got to be taller than Steve Petrie. Do you know that Steve Petrie is the size of point guards today? That's how tall point guards are today, and the point guards are the short guys, right? Um, uh, so having to have that conversation. Now, again, we can encourage we can encourage them still in it. He didn't absolutely flat out condemn it, but he was just saying that the likelihood of this happening may be a little slim, so let's come up with another plan. It's okay, here's plan A, but what's plan B, right? Let's talk about the plan B. But we don't need to cause unneeded discouragement. We don't deride or ridicule. We don't deride, we guide. Colossians chapter 3, verse 21, Colossians 3, 21. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. See, God doesn't want his children to be discouraged. And not by us fathers needlessly doing these types of things. But why do we do this? Why do we do this? I remember I was having a, a counseling session with a father and his son, and they were talking about these types of things. And, and, you know, and again, it was involving sports. And what it comes down to, it was coming down to that, yeah, son had better genes than dad. And so son was taller, bigger, stronger, faster, all of these things, and he's accomplishing things, and dad was always discouraging. And it come down to it, father was just jealous. He's jealous of his son. And discouraging the son from doing these types of things because he was accomplishing more than he could ever have dreamed or ever could have imagined. He's jealous that his child might accomplish more than he did, that they get more than he was trying to get. And I'm just like, are you listening to what you're, what you're saying here? Are you understanding what you're doing? 
Are you not supposed to be overjoyed? Neglect is another thing that angers children needlessly. Neglect. David and Absalom. David neglected his sons. That was really clear. Son became angry, committed a horrible act, killing his half-brother Amnon who raped his sister. He continued to neglect his son so much so that David, I mean, he, David maybe, maybe, David thought that he could ignore the problem by ignoring his children, but he continued to ignore his son, and then Absalom tried to take the kingdom away from his father. Neglect. Why do we neglect? Is it because we got more important things to do than to nurture our children? Got more important things to do? And, and I, one, one of the things I challenge men with when it comes to this stuff, if you were going to die, if you were to die today and you had the last moments of breath in your, would you regret that you didn't spend enough time with your kids? So that's, that's the goal. That's, that's the thing that, that I wanted to make sure that was very clear when it came to my life is like, would I, anytime I, I do that check, I, I place that, that, that check in my mind where I go, okay, if I died today, would I regret the fact that I didn't spend enough time with my kids? Showing that we're not neglecting. We want to make sure that we're spending enough time with our kids to make sure that we nurture because God tells us that we need to nurture our kids. Well, you can't do that if you're not spending time with them, right? What's another thing that, that causes needless anger with our children? Cruelty. A lot of times... Dads, we can just be just cruel, just mean. John Calvin writes, and ye fathers, parents, on the other hand, are exhorted not to irritate their children by unreasonable severity. This would excite hatred and would lead them to throw off the yoke altogether. Kind and liberal treatment has rather a tendency to cherish reverence for their parents and to increase the cheerfulness and activity of their obedience, while a harsh and unkind manner rouses them to obstinacy or um, stubbornness and destroys the natural affections. So do we release the reins? By no means. That is not what the Apostle Paul is saying here. We don't release the reins. We hold on to them. We don't strangle them. Seriously. It's like people are like, hey, can you summarize that? Yeah. Hold on to your children. Don't strangle them. That's essentially the goal. The rule of thumb. See, here's the rule of thumb. We, we put hard restrictions. So uh, younger, younger guys, you know, this is maybe for older, older, us older guys. If you guys are empty nesters, all that stuff, it may not necessarily uh, pertain to you, but it might help when you are instructing your sons or your, your, your son-in-laws, you know, one of, one of those moments where you're not going to kill your son-in-law, you're going to sit down and have a conversation with them, you know, we can, we can help them with some things. The, the rule of thumb that, that we have, and just think about this, think about how much sense this makes. What we tend to do in our culture today is when they're really little, and they're so cute, they're so little, we tend to, for the most part, let them do what they want. 
they want to go here, we let them go here. We just protect them, we watch them, you know, watch them. We, we want them to do this. When they're little, they want to do this. You let them have this, you let them have that. When they're little, we tend to let them have whatever they want. But the reality is, and this is what we did with our kids, still doing with our kids, <laughs> we absolutely put them in jail when they're little. We do not, when they're little, let them get whatever they want. We don't do that. We put restrictions and boundaries upon them when they were very young. Because when they get older, we can give them the freedom that they need. You see what, you see that? You see what it was said? It said, uh, here's another way of saying it. Uh, this, this one preacher, I can't remember. I think it might be Doug Wilson. Uh, Doug Wilson said this. He says, it's, it's, it said, when they are very young, they are inside the house being nourished while the neighborhood kids are outside playing. When they get older and the neighborhood kids are in the house grounded and angry, your kids are outside playing. You see that? Understanding this, it helps us that we nourish our children, that we instruct them, we teach them, all of these types of things. We don't strangle them. They were free to do whatever they wanted when they were really young. And now that they're old, we don't trust them to do the right thing. That's why we keep them home when they really need to be spreading their wings. That's why they get angry, because they know. It is like that clock within the young, young people. They know that it's getting close to the time where they're needing to express independence. And they want to express their independence while they're still under the covering of their family. But because we don't trust them, we got them chained to their bed in their room. You're grounded for the next 20 years. So fathers, we don't provoke our children to anger. But instead, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to raise them up gently with discipline and with instruction. So we're supposed to nourish them. So we, we provide our children with food physical, but, men, but not just physical food, but mental and spiritual food. So we nourish them. We, we, we give them what they need to grow. Child rearing is to be done carefully, fondly, gently. Okay, now I know that there are some guys that have this idea that child rearing is not, suppo it's not supposed to be gentle. You know, you deal with your son by smacking him on the head, you know, all of that kind of stuff. There's, there's, there's that mentality that you see. But discipline that we see here, he says we raise them up gently with discipline and with instruction. With discipline and with instruction. Discipline carries the sense of what is done to the child. So there are things we have to do to the child. Discipline carries that sense. To provide with the intent of forming proper habits of behavior. Things that we need to do. So it means chastening. It means discipline for bad behavior. There are things we're going to have to do. We're going to have to put them in timeout. We're going to have to ground them. We're going to have to do all of those types of things. Maybe if the child is older, maybe you need to unplug the PlayStation. You know, maybe not when they're 16, but if they're 40, yes. <laughs> Man. I'm just, I'm just blown away sometimes by some of the stuff I hear about what young men are doing these days. And, and this is what I'm talking about. It's this, 
it's just, you know, a lot of times when you have a, a young man growing up in mom's house without a dad, um, you know, there's bizarre behavior that happens all the way till they're even in their 40s, you know, 40 years old in the basement, you know, whatever. Instruction carries the sense of what is said. So discipline is what's done to a child. Instruction is what's said to a child. Warning them with the intent of forming proper habits of thought. Kind of like this is my final warning. Same way it's used in Titus. Titus chapter 3 verse 10. Titus chapter 3 verse 10. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with them. It's what's said. Warnings that are given. We give warnings. Things that are said to our, ch our child. So again, what is said to a child, essentially warnings and encouragements. But the key word here is that we're supposed to discipline and give instruction, the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so this here is key. Key for us fathers today, those of you who are, have children, those of you who are still raising children, those who may have children, you know, uh, uh, you know, maybe you, you'll have a child after the greyhound, maybe. Um, that conversation we had earlier today. Um, having children, the key here, and I get in trouble for saying stuff like this because I know a lot of times people just misunderstand. So don't, just give me a chance here, okay? Give me a chance. The key here for fathers, it is not the goal to get them to obey you. What? Oh, no. The goal is not to get them to obey you or to listen to you. The goal is to get them to obey the Lord. That's the goal. This is a lot of times where it gets confusing. This is a lot of times where we drop the ball. This is how we're provoking our children to wrath. This is how we're not nurturing our children in the way that they're supposed to go. Because our goal, we think, is that we got to get them to obey me. When I tell them to do something, they need to do it. When I say that they need to do this, they need to do it. They need to do that, you know, just, just like how we, we want our dogs to do. When we say sit, we want them to sit, and we just get upset when our kids don't do that, you know. We think that it's about getting them to obey us. But in the end, the reality is, is I'm teaching my kids not to obey me, but to obey the Lord. I'm not the standard of right and wrong. God is. So when I'm disciplining my children, it's not, hey, I'm disciplining you directly because you're disobeying me. No, I'm disciplining you right now because you broke God's law. What law did you break? You see? The goal is not necessarily the discipline so that they are well-behaved children. No. They need to be obedient worshipers of Jesus. That's the goal. The goal is not necessarily training our children so that they are of good character and moral people in accordance to the acceptable standards and educational standards of the world. 
No, they are to obey, praise, and glorify Christ the Lord. Not the standard which the world accepts, but the standard which God accepts. Not God's, it's God's laws, not the world's laws. The goal is not necessarily warning our children so that they make the world a better place. This is hard. Because I think that's a lot the goal for a lot of us. We just want our kids to be able to make a difference, to make this world a better place. No, we need our kids to fix their eyes upon Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of their faith. The goal is not necessarily admonishing our children so that they bring peace and prosperity to the land, but that they take up their cross and follow Jesus. Our goal is not to raise men and women worthy of praise, but men and women who praise the Lord. Men and women, not men and women admired by others, but men and women who admire God. Do you see? There's a huge difference. We're not raising our kids to be good people. We are raising our kids to be Christians. And that's huge. And I'm hoping I'm not confusing you with this. This is huge. This is a big deal. It changes everything when it comes to, quote, unquote, provoking our children to wrath or instructing them in the ways of the Lord. Remember, he said that. It's not just discipline and instruction, but discipline and instruction of the Lord. The goal is for us to raise Christians. Now, my dad's going to kill me for saying this. Not Republicans. You see the difference? Because, because let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. In, in the world, you know, we want them to be upstanding people in the world, all that stuff. You know, no, we want, we want them to be Christians. And let me tell you why this is important. Because if you read church history, Christians were not always seen as good people. Did you get that? There are times in church history where you see that Christians were not necessarily seen as good people. Because here's the deal. Here it is. What good is it to live a life acceptable to your fellow man, but yet be unacceptable to God? What good is it going to be for you to live an inspired life of success and admiration of the world, but then suffer eternal punishment and condemnation from God? What good is it to rise to the heights of awe in the eyes of man but fall to the depths in the eyes of God? What good is it to be the story of legend read by men but be the story of tragedy read by angels? What good is it to gain the whole world but lose your own soul? And I think that's, this is a hard one. It's a hard one for a, for a, lot, of, a lot of individuals. <laughs> hard one. Individuals that, that I've had conversations with, you know, we, they, they talk about, you know, I like, to, I like to call it the God of education. <laughs> you know, so they skip church. They skip vacation Bible school. 
they skip quiet time, they skip prayer time, they skip all of this stuff because they got papers they gotta write, they got projects they gotta do, did all this stuff, and it's just like, look, I, the goal of my child, I gotta get him into a good college. That's the deal, Shane. We gotta do it at all costs, we gotta get it. So I, I refer to that a lot of times as the God of education. You know, because he's going to do this, and, and he wants to be in technology. And, you know, there's a lot of big future in technology. And so he gets a good, you know, scholarship so that he can get a scholarship so he can go to MIT. He can go to Caltech, and he can get his Ph.D. there, and he can do wonders, and he can do amazing things in the technological field. Sure. He becomes a CEO, owner of a technological company, making millions and millions of dollars. Buying you and your husband a brand new house and new cars every Christmas. And giving you all of these things, giving you all the stuff that's amazing, successful. You know, he's got kids, you know, that, that, are, that are prime for the, the private school sector. And beautiful, loving wife, supportive. Amazing. And she goes, yeah, that, that's my goal. That's my dream for my son. Yeah. But what good is it if he has all of that and then when he dies, he burns in hell for eternity? What's the goal? Christians. Discipleship. You know, and I've said this jokingly before. If my son is the manager of, you know, French, French fry quality control at McDonald's. <laughs> but he is a worshiper of Jehovah. He loves the Lord with all his heart. He has a wife that loves the Lord with all her heart and kids that worship and glorify God. And you know what, family? That's success. Because our whole purpose here in life is not our own personal success. Our goal and purpose in life is that through my life, through every breath that I take, every step that I make, it's going to bring glory to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's the whole purpose of living. That's the whole reason why we're here. And our God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ever ask or imagine. And just amazed at what God can do with us. It's amazing. So we're here to make Christians, <laughs> to be fruitful and to multiply. To make Christians. Not to have people that take on the ideologies, the ideas of the world. Fathers, yes, we're supposed to provide for our family. We're supposed to nurture our, and discipline our kids. You know, fathers, if we don't think that's important for us to provide and to nourish, 1 Timothy chapter 5, 8. 1 Timothy chapter 5, 8. But if anyone doesn't provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. 
For fathers who do not think that it's important to teach and admonish, Proverbs chapter 19, verse 3, Proverbs 19, 3, a foolish son is ruin to his father. Matthew Henry, he says it's so blatant here. He says, a foolish son is a great affliction. Did you hear that? A foolish son is a great affliction and may make a man wish a thousand times he had been written childless. <laughs> just, it would have just been better, I would have been better off just not having kids. Today, family, many fathers in the world have failed. Many of us here in the room have failed many, many, in many ways. I have failed. And unfortunately, we all continue to fail. Many today have abandoned their children, absent from their life. So many fatherless homes, single mothers, many angry, unforgiving to their fathers. Many fathers today wishing they never had any kids. Why not? That's what we see on TV. We are the idiots who don't matter in this world today. People got to fix our messes. All we do is fail on TV. Society attacks on our authority. And now they look and look at what we now face today, that we live in a society of the fatherless because the fathers are throwing their hands up saying, well, what doesn't even matter anymore. Why even try? I get it. I understand. Because I get that all the time. And I counsel fathers and husbands all the time. They just throw their hands up and like, why even bother? It doesn't make any difference. Nobody cares. So we live in a society of the fatherless. Children are without fathers. Adults are without fathers. And most importantly, and here's the biggest tragedy of them all, fathers are without fathers. We see so desperately the need for forgiveness and love from our earthly fathers, how much more from our heavenly father. So I want you to hear today, every single person here today, all of us, even those today who may feel fatherless, you are not fatherless. Because of Christ, you have a father in heaven who loves you and he loves us all and he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. Yeah, sin did a number on us. Oh yeah, sin did. Ripping us away from our heavenly father, causing us to run away, estranged, even turning our backs on him. Yet, you know what he did? He continued to nourish us with kindness and gentleness. He continues to discipline us. And when the discipline is done, it reaps a harvest of righteousness. Our Heavenly Father continues to instruct us and thoroughly equips us for every good work. And this love and forgiveness came because of the amazing work of Christ, the amazing work that Christ did on the cross. He loved us. He wouldn't let us go. He held on to us. He didn't strangle us, even though we deserve to be strangled. He held on to us. And what did he do? He sent his son into the world to die, to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus came 
into this world. He died for our sins according to the scriptures. And he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. Family, what does that mean? It means, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None at all. And the promises continue for us that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so family, all that was broken and lost has been restored to us like many of our earthly fathers have done. And here's the thing. And we who are evil... We know how to good, give good gifts. How much more our Heavenly Father who is good. So you see, we have hope today. We have hope tomorrow because our Lord nurtures us to grow in the discipline and instruction. And I know that many of us, life is hard. Life is rough. We struggle. But this is the discipline that the Lord gives us. But Shane, you don't understand. It doesn't feel good. I know it doesn't feel good. Because the Bible says that no discipline feels good at the time. It doesn't. But in the end, it's going to reap a harvest of righteousness for you. That means when you get through it, you are going to be better off more and more like Christ, growing in grace and the knowledge of our Lord. Let's pray. Thank you for listening, and may the Lord bless you and keep you. For more information about Central Baptist Church, go to www.cbcaurora.com.